Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Series on the Psalms, and I'm, I always love preaching through the Psalms. But particularly this summer, because as we've learned, the Psalms help us and train us to cry out to God. And I really needed that this summer. And I don't think I'm alone. But next week, we will begin our new series on a, um, on a subject that I'm really excited about. The new series is called Resolute, Tenacious Faith in Tumultuous Times. And we're going to explore communities and individuals in the Bible who lived through tumultuous times, which, spoiler, is basically everybody, um, and explore what it looks like basically to have a faith that is resolute when everything around them is falling apart. But today, uh, we are turning our attention to Psalm 103. This is an amazing psalm. It really almost preaches itself. I hardly need uh, to offer any commentary. I'm tempted actually to just read it, maybe read it again, and then read it a third time, pray, and call it a day. That's the kind of text that we're about to encounter. But I will dig into it a little bit with you, and we will ask God the Spirit to make this text alive so that we would worship uh, by the time we're done. And so let me just read this. Uh, I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children. To those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens. And His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels. The mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts, 
to be pleasing and acceptable to you. Because in Christ you are not our enemy anymore, but our rock and our redeemer, our refuge. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Recently I was eating dinner with my family and we answered the question like we like to do almost every summer. What was your top two, maybe top three things that you did this summer? I asked this question last summer, and it was a lot easier to answer. Uh, this summer it was very different, and we had to be a lot more creative. There was no summer camp like we had planned. There was no Grandview Pool, which is a staple. But eventually we all came up with our answers. And by the time we were done, uh, the dinner moment, uh, we moved from grumpy to grateful. And this happened to me last week in a different situation as well. I walked into my house feeling grumpy with cabin fever and with disillusionment. And I saw my wife's computer screensaver, which is a montage of old pictures of our family. And it immediately changed my heart as I, I approached my children differently for the rest of the day. And in both of these cases, I went from grumpy to grateful. But notice... It took work. It took initiative. It wasn't automatic. In other words, it wasn't the default of my heart. The default of my heart is ingratitude, not gratitude. I think we all know this struggle. When everything around us is bad, we forget the good things that are around us. I think that's why there's an entire cottage industry around the practice of gratitude right now. Just Google gratitude and you will be bombarded with blogs, articles, podcasts, merchandise on the subject of gratitude. We're actually learning from neuroscience that our bodies are designed to experience gratitude. Apparently, when I saw those family pictures on my wife's computer screensaver, there are these neurotransmitters called dopamine and serotonin that, that were stimulated and which made me feel good, which is a good thing because when we feel good because of these neurotransmitters, we think more clearly. We react uh, with, with more grace and mercy. We reflect more than we react. We bless those around us with a non-anxious presence. It seems, in other words, that we were designed to say thank you. The only problem is we don't, do we? Especially when things around us are so bad. Which is why we need the Psalms, and which is why we need Psalm 103. Because they remind us that gratitude is an ancient reality, rooted in the reality of a personal God, who is the author and giver of all good things. The reason our bodies are designed to say thank you is because our bodies are designed by God. Psalm 103, you could say, is the original gratitude journal. It models how to say thank you to God, even when, especially when, things are bad. This is a psalm of David, it says, right before verse 1. David was no stranger to lament. In fact, the majority of the psalms that we've been exploring over the summer have been brutal, almost accusations against God. So he's no Pollyanna who's just simply ignoring tough realities in his life. So how can David, who is a, is a, is a poet of lament, also be a poet of gratitude? 
Well, we see it. We see it. We see how in this psalm. This psalm models how to say thank you to God. In verses 1 through 2, it says it positively and negatively. So positively, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And it says it over and over and over again. Blessing God basically means speaking well of God. And then negatively, he says, forget not all of his benefits. And there it is. The problem beneath every problem. It's a divine forgetfulness. In the Old Testament, divine forgetting, this word here, forgetting, was always connected to human pride. You see, forgetting, forgetting God and His benefits in the Scriptures is not simply like, oh, I forgot, like like a mental checklist, something that you left behind. No, forgetting in the Old Testament is much more holistic. It's actually a human pride. It's a standing in the center of the universe, displacing God. That's divine forgetting. On the other hand, this psalm here models divine gratitude, which I'll define this way. Divine gratitude is not just calling to mind, but it's calling to heart all of God's benefits. If divine forgetfulness is pride, divine gratitude is worship. It's a heart that is bowed. But more than that, it's a heart that is on fire, on fire for God. And so how do we get there? How do we move from divine forgetfulness, cold pride, to divine gratitude, white-hot worship? Well, the first few verses tell us how. We intentionally call to heart God's benefits. Remember, our default is in gratitude. So this has to be an intentional gathering to heart of the benefits of God. This is divine remembering. It's a spiritual practice that we must do daily. What Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament scholar, calls gathering kindling He says the psalmist here is using his mind and memory to kindle his emotions. The psalm, in other words, teaches us something vital. The center of Christianity is not mere doctrine, but kindled emotions. It's a heart of fire. As one author puts it, biblical meditation, unlike the popular varieties, is not a relaxation technique for emptying the mind, but rather one that fills it with truth using thought and memory to set your heart on fire. So think of gospel truth. Think of biblical truth, which is so vitally important, as sticks for fire. You need them. And the pursuit of biblical truth, as our church is, off, is after, is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. Orthodoxy is absolutely imperative. We need these as sticks for the fire, because these truths embolden and, and fuel a heart that burns for God and issues into glory, promotes acts of sacrifice and love towards others. A healthy heart, in other words, 
is a heart on fire for the true God. And so we must do three things. We must gather sticks of truth. We must spark the flame. And we must fan the flame. And so first we gather sticks. And that's really verses 3 through 19 in our passage this morning. This is really just a long poetic list of the benefits of God. These are sticks that David intentionally gathers in his life. Just like putting pictures around your house, or like my wife put pictures on her screensaver, or like asking questions around the dinner table about things that you enjoyed over the summer. It takes intentionality. You have to gather them around you and use your memory and your mind and, 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 and kindle that. Use it as kindling. Here's what I love about Psalm 103. These sticks are always there. Think of the last time you tried to start a fire, maybe at a campsite, and you or maybe one of your friends went out to gather kindling, and it just was a struggle bus because you couldn't find the kindling. You couldn't find the sticks. That's how we often feel about with gratitude, isn't it? We think, all right, I got to be grateful. I got to be grateful. I got to be grateful. Okay, what do I look for to be, to be grateful about? And it's a hard struggle sometimes, especially in moments like today. But here's the thing. Psalm 103 has all these sticks that are always there because they're rooted in the, the reality and the eternality of God. These are things that we can always be thankful for, no matter what is going on circumstantially. And so instead of me kind of trying to divide these up into a handy, memorable kind of clever way, I think it's better to let the psalm have its effect. You know, after all, David didn't organize this into three points that start with the same letter. <laughs> he, he, he wanted to have a cascading effect. He just sort of laid it all out there. Here is what's happening. Here's what I'm calling to mind. It's like walking into a museum. It's meant to overwhelm you with its beauty. Or like visiting a city like Paris. Just walk through it and let it overwhelm you. And so what I want to do is I just want to pray briefly one more time that God would use these sticks to kindle in our heart again fire. And I want to, after praying about that, I want to walk through the text again. So God, we do ask that what would happen in the next 10 minutes would not be study time, but worship. That what would happen would be a miracle. Holy Spirit, you superintended these words. Would you illumine our hearts? Would you wake up our sleeping hearts? Surprise us, shock us with a joy and a worship. Lord, bow our hearts before you. Make our hearts sing of you as we call to heart your benefits. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 3 provides first the kindling of forgiveness. It says the Lord forgives all your iniquity. So how much sin does the Lord forgive? This verse says all of it. 
And how is that possible? Well, in David's time, remember, it was possible because of a sacrificial system. Um, an innocent animal took on the punishment that we deserve. Uh, the priest actually would lean his weight against the spotless animal in a way transferring uh, their iniquity onto the animal. And God would accept this and forgive all the iniquity. Why? Because ultimately it pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. Listen, when we trust Jesus, we are essentially leaning on him and there is a divine transfer that is happening. He is taking our sin and we receive his perfect righteousness. This is the kindling of forgiveness. Verse 3 also provides the kindling of healing. Who heals all your diseases, it says. This line assumes the world is broken. It assumes what many of us know personally, that our bodies are broken. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But this verse also assumes that God is a God who heals. God doesn't always heal in our lifetime, uh, but he will ultimately heal our bodies in the resurrection to come. In fact, the reason that Jesus healed so much in the Gospels is because he was giving us a preview of new heavens and new earth where all that is broken by disease will be reversed. The kindling of healing. Verse 4, if we keep going, provides the kindling of resurrection hope. He says, who redeems your life from the pit. Redeem means to rescue. The pit means death. Death is the ultimate enemy. The pit uh, is the ultimate enemy. And so this is a whisper that death does not have the final word in God's economy. But this whisper becomes a shout on Easter morning when Jesus is raised from the dead. He's the first fruit of a greater harvest of which all who are clinging to him with empty hands of faith are a part. The kindling of future resurrection. Verse 4 also provides the kindling of security. It says, God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. We're crowned by God. We don't do the crowning. God does the crowning. And it's a crown that we don't deserve. It's mercy. And it's mercy in a committed love. It's a, I will never let you go love. That's what steadfast love means. It's been pointed out that in the New Testament, we aren't really called uh, Christians. In fact, uh, really what Christ followers are called is in Christ or with Christ. That's the designation that we often are given in the New Testament. And that tells us something. See, in Christ we are crowned, we are clothed with something outside of us that we don't deserve. But it makes us shine. The mercy and loving commitment of God is a crown to those he loves. The kindling of security. And then the kindling of satisfaction in verse 5. God satisfies you with good. All of life, we know this, is a quest to be satisfied. And only in the Lord, some of us have experienced this, can we have ultimate satisfaction? Can we rest? Jesus is this abundant life. Life to the full. Our cup can only be filled to the full and overflowing in and by Jesus. The kindling of renewal in verse 5. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Um, have you ever seen an eagle flying off or an eagle landing or an eagle in flight? Uh, if you have, you understand the power of this image. What it is, is it's a real renewal that we have in the Lord. A real transformation. It says that in Christ, 
new creation. We are new creations. We are renewed. We have the Holy Spirit uniting us uh, to Jesus. And we have a renewal, a transformation, and a promise of transformation here in this verse. It's kindling for the fire. Verse 6 provides the kindling of justice. It says the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God is not aloof to evil and injustice. Amen? I mean, we might think, how can a loving God, a merciful God, also be a just God? But don't you see, it's his love that fuels his heart for justice. His love of his creation fuels a holy outrage against anything that defaces it. He is unlike all human kings, even the best of human rulers. He's, his ear always hears and picks up the voices that no one else hears. I like what Rich Valadas says. He says that mercy is the bandage over the bleeding. Justice stops the one who caused the bleeding in the first place. In this psalm, we see that God does both. And it's on the cross that we see his justice and his mercy and his commitment to both in its fullest picture. The kindling of justice, the kindling of presence. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. See, that God doesn't sit back. To quote Rich Rollins, he rolls up his sleeves. He gets involved in the world that he made. He makes known his ways and acts. This verse is referring to the Exodus, the Old Testament Exodus Um, where God reaches down and rescues his people. God, who is inapproachable light, draws near to rescue and redeem a people by grace from Egypt. In the second exodus, this same holy God enters into the waters of judgment through Jesus, so that we never will. And who is raised from the waters, giving us his inheritance, the promised land, And his forever presence. We have the kindling of God's presence through the greater exodus in Jesus. And then the kindling of grace. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is a quote from Exodus 34.6 where God gives us his own self-portrait. A window into himself. This is who God says he is. A Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger, in abounding, not stingy, abounding in steadfast love. In case you thought that all these benefits flow to those who earn it, God reminds us that these benefits flow to those who do not earn it in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. But that's what we would expect. So, in fact, Exodus 34 goes on to say that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. We are the guilty ones. And so how can verse 10 be true? Well, I love what Tim Keller writes. He says, only the cross would reveal what it cost God to punish sin without punishing us. This is the kindling of grace. And then verse 9, we see the kindling of gentleness. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. So unlike us, God is gentle in heart. We learned this summer that the only time Jesus talked about his heart, he said he was gentle in heart. We need to rehaul our thinking 
about God. God is gentle in heart. And then in verses 11 through 19, we see the kindling for divine adoption. I want to start by reading verse 19. It says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. God is the King of all. Of all, His rule is over all things, the totality of everything. Uh, but this powerful king is also a compassionate, empathic father. Verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's a lot, so is his steadfast, I will never let you go, love, towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's a decisive distance, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And that phrase, who fear him, is a way of of combining two things, reverence and awe. It's a worshiping heart, a heart that, that understands that God is God and they are not, and also apprehends the benefits of God and, and experiences them for themselves. There's a worship that happens. For he knows our frame, verse 14, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, like a wind that passes over. It's gone and its place knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. God is king of all and he is father as well. When my boys are struggling, and I'm an imperfect father, I actually get more tender with them. And that's what happens here in verse 14. He knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. The king of all, we would expect him to be harsh. But the picture we get here is that the king of all is a king who doesn't just accept us, but delights in us. Some of us um, only have a legal understanding and a legal mindset with God, which is biblical. It's important to have that. We think, I am legally right with God. And we stop there. But this encourages us to have a family mindset with God as well. He doesn't just accept us in a court of law. He does. But he also delights in us as a father would, the perfect father in heaven. And we could go on and we could talk about these things more in depth. But what we have just done here is we've just gathered 12 sticks. We've gathered them. And now all we need is a spark and a bellow. The spark is Jesus. He alone, as I've been pointing out, he alone fulfills this psalm. He, he sings this psalm. He lives this psalm out. And the Holy Spirit is the bellow. When we accept Jesus, and maybe that's you this morning, you, you have never accepted Jesus. You've never laid down your arms, you've never opened your hands, and with empty hands laid hold of Jesus and trusted in Him. If that's you, and you lay hold of Jesus, you are promised the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit, God the Spirit alone applies everything Jesus is, even the person of Jesus, to ourselves. He alone, Holy Spirit, awakens our hearts to Jesus. And when He does, look what happens. In the last few verses, worship. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, the mighty ones who do his word. What's David doing? He's singing with all of creation, the whole world, seen and unseen, angels and even the the creation around him. 
And what he's noticing is that the world is already singing. It already has been. When we come to Jesus, and when we worship Jesus, and when the Spirit bellows and fans the flame of worship in our heart, what is happening is we are simply waking up to what is already going on with the angels and with the creation. Creation is waiting and groaning for our redemption. The creation, all places of his dominion, verse 22, is blessing the Lord, as we learned last week from Psalm 19. All of creation is blessing the Lord. And when we are sinners are made right and then put into God's family, we are simply joining in the song, in the worship. I think this should tell you something. The point of Christianity is a song. It's worship. Ideas, worldview, doctrine is vitally important. We need to see them as kindling for a fire. A heart that is on fire. Are some of you feeling spiritually dry while praying this psalm, singing this psalm, is like gathering kindle, kindling. The sticks are here no matter what you're going through. And so praying this is really an invitation, a discipline of delight. We never want to stop short of a heart that is on fire. And so let's just pray for that now. Lord, we ask that you would set our hearts on fire. That we would follow our cues from David here. And that we would gather the kindling and with our mind and imagination remember the benefits that you have for us. Lord, if it just means taking one of these sticks, just one, and, and meditating on it this week, we ask, Lord, that you would empower us to do that. Because we admit right now that the problem beneath all of our problems is a worship problem. We worship the wrong things. We get excited about the wrong things, Lord. We sing worship songs about the wrong things. And what this, your word is doing in our hearts right now, this very moment, is it's teaching us to sing about you. And it's in Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.